Okay, great. Um, so I've shut the door because we don't want to disrupt that room when I'm just hilariously funny and uh, we don't want to spoil a serious seminar with whatever we're going to do in here. Um, there's some really amazing people talking on some really interesting things. So I'm really grateful that you've, you've chosen to make this one of them where a, a less than brilliant person is talking on a really important thing. So just, um, I hope this is really practically helpful to you. Um, I'm going to try and break it down like 20 to 25 minutes and then leave plenty of time for Q&A. It's just interesting that in a couple of the seminars I caught, um, there was already some questions that leaned towards how, do, how am I fruitful evangelistically at university or in my context or in my work. So we can try and tease some of that stuff out. I grew up uh, intensely hostile to Christianity. And so there is something in my story that shapes what I, I care about. I realized when I met a person who could explain the good news in words that made sense to me, that my understandings of Christianity were a misunderstanding. So I had grown up, um, my, my parents weren't hostile to it, but I'd taken like their agnosticism to a new level in atheism, where I would do sort of stand-up comedy sets mocking Christianity in my school lunch times. Um, but, but underneath this kind of superficial aggression, there was an immense amount of covert searching and hurt. And the only thing that made me open up to the honesty of that realization was a friend who stuck it out no matter how much I offended the thing that was most important in their life. Somebody loved me for an extended period of time and walked with me. And in that context of relationship, I was willing to be honest about what I was looking for when I never would have been in public. And so that has kind of shaped it. I think it is a tragedy for anybody to reject Christianity. But I think, hey, come on in. Um, I think rejecting a misunderstanding of it is a special kind of tragedy. And so if I care about one thing, it is that everybody, or as many people as possible, would get to hear the authentic message of the good news from a person whose life embodies it. That's what I kind of care about, and this is what this seminar is about. Uh, when I was younger, I really wanted to be cool, and so I thought there was something that would remove the idea beyond any doubt in anybody's mind. And I thought, when you're kind of in your early teens, there's nothing cooler than being a bit older. And so I thought what I would do is I'd kind of borrow the vicarious coolness of my brother's older age by taking a CD, so I've aged myself there, so I was gonna take a CD to a school disco. And I would say to the DJ, when the moment's right, and only when the moment's right, I want you to play track 10. And what would happen, then my brother's music would come on and I would do a pre-choreographed dance <laughs> and everybody would be left in no doubt that I was cool. A um, cu couple of things that I hadn't counted on. Um, I don't know what your school discos were like, but on mine, there was a, a row of girls down one wall and there was a row of boys down the other. And in the middle, there was a sort of social chasm into only in which a desperate child would do a dance. Okay, so that was kind of the setup of a school disco back in my day, just this like strobe lit chasm of sorrow. And it turned out that me and the DJ had our wires crossed. So I was saying to the, I said to the DJ, when the moment's right, and I was obviously sensing this was absolutely not the best moment, give the plan a miss, but he decided in that moment that this was the time to do it. So he dropped my name. The next request has come from Ed. So I thought, go big or go home. I take my place in the middle of the strobe lit social chasm, except he didn't play track 10, he played track one. Uh-oh. Uh <laughs> hey, 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 uh-oh, uh, uh, Celevi by Bewitched, in case you were wondering. 
So I changed schools and, um, <laughs> and I've never recovered from it. So look, look, maybe, you, maybe you know that scene of a school disco. Basically, you get something like, an hour, it's an hour and a half, of, hour and 15 minutes, nobody's dancing. The Macarena will get one group to start going. Saturday Night by Wigfield will come up. This might not be your songs, I appreciate. House of Pain's Jump Around gets a few more people in the go. And by the time Teenage Dirtbag comes on, everybody is so into it that when the teacher comes in and turns the lights on, says it's time to go home, everyone goes, oh. Which is like this profound irony. They have spent the whole night not dancing. Then the lights come on, it's time to go home, and they're disappointed. There will be a day uh, when the lights come on and it's time to go home. And the only thing we will regret is that we didn't dance sooner. When it comes to loving our neighbor, when it comes to showing mercy, we are not gonna regret the times that we loved our neighbor to the brim. We're not gonna regret the mercy that we showed or the time that we were there for them or the person that we did pluck up the courage to tell. We're not gonna regret it. But what I have found is this, the reality is there. This session was gonna be called Connecting with God's Heart for Your Neighbor. The reality is, I think, we already have it. There was a survey called the Talking Jesus Survey. It said 97% of Christians think that the best thing that could happen to their neighbor or friend is that their friend would become a Christian. We, we already think it is the best thing that could happen to someone. The problem is that there are lies we've told ourselves or myths we'd adopted that leave us pinned to the walls, that stop us from dancing because we think things like, uh, well, I don't have the gift, so I can't be fruitful. I'm not the right personality type, so how could I be fruitful? Or what if they ask a question that I can't answer? There is a load of like myths that keep us pinned to the wall. That same survey said that 40%, whilst 97% believe that the best thing that could happen to their friend is that their friend becomes Christian, 40% would say it was better if someone else did it. They want to dance, but they don't really know how. They want to dance, but they think that the joy of seeing Jesus transform a life is a joy reserved for somebody else with a different personality type to me. And I want to persuade you that that is not true. That joy is intended for everybody that's his. Okay, so that's where I want to go. And to find that out, I think there is one group of people who are more helpful than any other, and it's the group of servants at the wedding at Cana. So I'm just going to read really quickly from John 2. Uh, this is um, the wedding at Cana. And then we're just gonna press on like a couple of points from the servants and then I've already lost track of time because I can't do the mental arithmetic that quick. This is John 2, it says, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet, and they did so. When the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called to the bridegroom and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after and the guests when they've had too much to drink, but, but you've saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, here's a few truths that I think set us free to be fruitful. Number one, the servants are participants, not miracle workers. 
understand who does what in this transformative miracle. You see, so this is kind of a very symbolic miracle. It's kind of the sign of what he was doing, which is it points to another reality. He makes between 700 to 1,000 litres of wine to let the world know that he is the one who's come to bring the party back. And he's not just come to bring it back to the whole of history, but to individual lives one at a time. So there is something in this image of Jesus doing a transformative miracle that I think is really helpful for us being evangelistically fruitful. The servants were involved in something amazing, but they were anonymous. I mean, think about it. I don't know how you imagine they filled these water jars, a thousand litres of water in first century Israel. There's no tap. That means that is a serious number of trips to a well. Like this miracle, if I was reading the Gospel of John and I was one of these people and I'd come and, and, and like John had interviewed me about this miracle, and I'd explained what happened, I would have been furious that they called it Jesus's miracle because he doesn't get a single cup. Jesus doesn't do a single thing. Jesus, to the best of our knowledge from the passage, he never touches any water whatsoever. They do a thousand trips to the well and then they must have come to it when they read it, when it first got published, and they are anonymous. Their names aren't even in it because whilst they did the mechanical stuff, the efficient cause, the real cause was Jesus. They participate, but he does the transformation. And if you think you've come to this seminar to find out how to transform a life, you're going to be hugely disappointed because only Jesus can transform a life. We just love our neighbours to the brim. Okay, so really important. They revealed in this, they stepped into something amazing and they got something and we're going to look at what they got out of it. But Jesus revealed his glory. Super important. So... So what? Uh, start with praying and feel the freedom that you are not going to transform anybody. Jesus is. We participate in what he is doing. Talk to Jesus about your friends before you talk to your friends about Jesus. Because he's the only one that can actually transform their life. We serve, he transforms. Okay, two, they obeyed to the brim. They obeyed to the brim. I, th there's something kind of beautiful about um, that language. I mean, they don't even know why Jesus has asked them to fill it at this point. They have no idea that a miracle is coming. They've got no idea that a transformation is coming. And Mary, in a moment of typical wisdom, says, do whatever he tells you. And when he says, fill it, they fill it to the brim. I want you to sort of imagine with me what it looks like when Jesus says, love your neighbour. What does it look like to love them to the brim? That is, there's... There's no gap left where I could have done more to bless them or show them mercy. This is really helpful. I've done this in like a lot of um, places, this kind of exercise. I'm not going to get you to do it now, which might dilute it of all of its rhetorical force, but we're going to give it a go anyway. What I like to do with the room is say like draw a column down the middle of a page. And on the left hand side, what I want you to do is write down the attributes of an evangelist. And if you give people 30 seconds, you can even do it now. Like it's fairly intuitive exercise whilst I'm wittering on filling for time. But on the left-hand side, if you say, write down the personality traits and characteristics of an evangelist and go for it. And you can even imagine them in your mind now for a moment. What you're going to get, well, we'll come back to in a second. On the right-hand side, write down the list of characteristics and attributes that sum up the person that was most significant in you becoming a Christian. And here's what you'll get on the left-hand side, typically, courageous, good communicator, extroverted, bold, confident. 
On the right hand side you get kind, patient, loving, there, listener. See, on the left-hand side, what you get is the list of attributes where we imagine what a fruitful life looks like, and on the right-hand side, you get the kind of life that actually is. The miraculous can often feel unspectacular, like a thousand trips to a well, like a thousand tiny gestures. But, but when it's motivated from worship, you'll be amazed what God puts behind it. These people filled it to the brim. If you ask what it feels like to be involved in a transformative miracle, it is often not spectacular. So what? Okay, I would really, I, I probably spent most of my years saying, Jesus, would you make me fruitful? Like I want, I want people to be reached for you. And what I wanted to be reached was a, a homogenous group of people called the lost. And I never stopped during my uni years to look at the people who, by providence, he had already put next to me. That is what, like, almost like all this time I was in my prayer life saying, just whatever it is, just make me the kind of person who's really, really fruitful. Like, make me into an evangelist in the future, where Jesus was almost like dancing around the people who were next to me, saying, if you want to be fruitful, love the one. If you want to be fruitful, here's a great thing to let die. Any idea that you being successful involves the numbers that you see saved. Success is loving the one. Success is loving the one that God has already put there. Do you know, between a third and a quarter of people are interested in the difference that Christianity could make to their life. People are like me. Despite a superficial confidence, there is a furious searching going on, but people don't want to admit it. We have to maintain the illusion that we've got everything sorted. That there is a relational bridge in our culture is necessary. Look, the gospel can cross any bridge. You can meet someone in a moment, tell them the truth, God can rescue them just like that. But the covert searching of a friend needs a relational bridge to be built for them to be honest about it. Okay. A guy called David W. Alsberger and he wrote a book called Caring Enough to Hear and Be Heard. He said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. I would just encourage, you might feel pinned to the wall because you think your friend will have a question that you can't answer. I would just encourage you that you have what they actually want which is someone who will take their question seriously, like a friend who will listen and will care. That's in the mix of loving people to the brim, right? Three, these servants cross the pain line. I wish I could tell you that there's never a pain line, but the fact that there is a pain line makes this really glorious. Okay, so um, what do I mean by a pain line? Um, I grew up in Godalming, and the best thing that you can do in Godalming is get the train to Guildford, okay? Because in Guildford, they have the Guildford Spectrum. And now it, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't even know what that was, because you've ever been to the Spectrum. It's not the Oz-like wonderland that just got made by that, implied by that sound. But I'll tell you what they did have. They had a 10 meter diving board. Right, let me tell you now. We, as a group of friends, <laughs> I just love this enthusiasm. This is so good. Uh, uh, <laughs> We as a group of friends, like 
what we wanted to do, we would go down there, have a paddle about, but what we were waiting for was someone to get it wrong and belly flop. <laughs> there, there are some beautiful sounds in the world. I think classical music is a beautiful sound. I think sung worship is a glorious sound. But a horizontal torso <laughs> striking the water, that is the most glorious sound that you can ever hear. I want you to imagine that you're up at the top of the 10 meter board at the Guildford Spectrum. Any other 10 meter board will do. And you're looking down and the pool is empty. And God says, jump. Now, this is how it works for us normally. We say, God, if you fill it, I will jump. And God says, if you jump, I'll fill it. There's a pain line moment where you're like, am I going to go for this or am I not going to go for this? And they are the scariest moments, terrifying moments. Look, I don't know in this passage when the miracle happened, but I can tell you when I think it happened because God usually works like that. If you, as a servant in first century Israel, give a cup of water to a master of the feast who's expecting wine, it's not going to go well for you. There is a pain line to be crossed. And here's the most beautiful line in the passage. You know, when the, when the master of the feast tastes it, he tastes the water that's become wine. And it says he didn't know where it came from. This line, I think, is just so beautiful to me. It says the servants knew. There is something about crossing the, the pain line and finding God to be faithful in your obedience that builds an intimacy with him like nothing else. Now I started, like there was a zeal in me for people to hear about Jesus because it's urgent, like the world is lost and the church should reach them. There was an urgency that began it. Then I started loving my neighbor, <laughs> having done it really initially for my sake. And, and so like compassion is the fuel now for loving my neighbor to the brim. But what I think I've come to realize is the way to be really fruitful is when all of your evangelism is about worship. I do it for him. Like, it's true. So as a matter of integrity, I want the world to know. And I actually love my neighbor. So compassion fuels it. But the only way to keep going so much that you love your neighbor to the brim, even when it's difficult and even when it's hard and even when it feels risky, is if you drive it down into worship. And the fact that the servants knew, I think this is what Paul's getting at in Philemon 1.6 when he says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you may know every good thing that we have in Christ. Uh, typo there, Paul. I think you might mean, I pray that you would be active so that they know. And Paul says, Nuh-uh. I pray that you would be active so that you know. There's some stuff in the gospel that you only discover when you share it. Okay, four. We might do this in just over 20 minutes. Share your story like it's the best till now. If you ask a Christian, to, oh, this has come out of recent surveys, it might have been the Talking Jesus survey, I think it probably was. Ask a Christian to describe Jesus from a set of like characteristic offers, like um, spiritual, good leader, teacher. The thing that comes out top in the 90s, loving. There is something about him that we've discovered by experience, he is loving. You ask non-Christians and it's down in the low teens. The thing that we are most persuaded of by experience about Jesus is the thing that our friends most doubt. So here's what I mean by, when the wine comes to this master of the feast and he tastes it, 
And in this kind of, we're using it as an allegory for the, the message of the gospel now, right? But when he tastes it, he says, oh my, where have you been hiding that? Like that is the most wonderful, glorious, I've never had anything like it. Oh my, God, you've really got to try this kind of thing. When we share our story with our friends, we are inviting them to an act of the imagination. I think there are two fundamental objections to Christianity. One is about evidence, and do I have to leave my brain at the door? And the other set, of which there are a multitude of surface questions that go down to one fundamental question is, is God good? I have come to believe on the basis of experience or on things that I have seen or questions that I have that love is either not at the heart of the character of God or not at the heart of the Christian faith. I think that is a ton of questions that drive it down to that. So you don't need a stunning answer because in John's gospel and the rest of it, here is, here is what good evangelism looks like in John. Come and see. Come and see. So in the very next chapter, <clears throat> Philip sees his brother Nathaniel and says, come and see. I have found the one that Moses and the prophets were all talking about. Or the woman in the well who says, come and see. I've just met someone who told me everything that I ever did. This would be an amazing moment of good evangelism, which is to say, I know that you have reasons to believe that love is not at the heart of the character of God, but I've tasted it and it's true. Like, I have discovered it to be, oh my goodness, where have you been hiding this? You've really got to try it, come and see kind of good. And then the fifth thing, which I would encourage you to do, uh, is this. Loving your neighbour to the brim means an invitation to hear what Jesus has done to save them. Um, there's an odd quirk in the passage, but Jesus responds to Mary with something that sounds very, um, like, jarring to the discussion when she says, They've run out of wine, and his response is, but my hour has not come. And like, it's just, what, what's that got to do with anything? But, but when you read the rest of John, in every instance where Jesus is talking about his hour in the book of John, he's talking about the moment that he's going to die. So if I paraphrase this for you, Mary says, Jesus, the party's over. It's done. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die yet. And in that moment, he shows us what it's going to take for him to bring the party back. Loving your neighbour to the brim involves a moment where they become aware of their lostness and need for rescuing. That the way that he brings the transformation is through a message which, when properly understood, is good all the way down. And I, and I I cannot tell you the gratitude that I have for a friend who crossed the pain line to invite me to hear a person who told me that I was lost. Because I knew it, if I'm honest. Like, underneath all of the bravado, I knew it. So, here we go. Number one, the servants are participants, not miracle workers. Two, they obeyed to the brim. Three, and I should probably know this because they're my own notes, they crossed the pain line. Four, they shared, or for us as a practical application, we share our story like this message is the best till now. And five, loving our neighbour to the brim means through an act of worship, being there and listening and sharing our lives and our food and our interest and our time and our money and our effort and whatever he's given you, give to them 
but it also means this, pointing them to the hour because it's what they actually need more than anything else.